Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to episode sixty of Strangers in a Cinema. I am one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with my other co-host, Pete Wall, and producer Jack Mills. How are we both? Not bad, Paul. Not bad at all. Good. Episode sixty, uh, we, we've reached this momentous landmark already. Yes, forty episodes to go, and then we hit one hundred. Wow, we've come so far. That will be some point next year, won't it? I, think, <laughs> I, I would expect the so. momentous one hundredth birthday. So, if we actually start planning for that episode now. We might come up with something special to do for it. Yeah, well, with the, the <laughs> clip at which we were used to release episodes, it would have been about seven years away. But yeah, you're right. I think yeah. it's going to be next year. Yes. So, um, Paul, we have coming up on today's show two feature reviews. We tend to do two feature reviews on this show. This week, we have reviews of the new version, imagining, iteration of Flatliners. Or is it a sequel? Is it a sequel? <laughs> um, watch this space for an answer to that that question. And we also have our review of uh, The Bad Batch, Anna Lily Amipour's follow-up. Which finally came out. <laughs> follows up uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night that we were quite um, into when, when that released sort of a, a year or two back. But before any of that, Paul, let's do what we always do about this time on the Strangers in a Cinema podcast and step into the foyer. What have you got for us this week in our news section? Well, we've got two things this week. Uh, one of them is news about a film. One of them is news about us. So we'll start with news about the film, I think, because that's probably more important than news about us. Um, this is the news that J.J. Abrahams, I don't know whether he's attached to direct this yet or not, in some capacity is putting together a live-action remake of the exceptional Japanese animation Your Name. Um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, really. And there are there are some concerns um, that, that might be another example of flagrant Hollywood whitewashing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm presuming it's going to be sort of ported into some American environment to, to begin with, right? I mean, I don't. You're you're bringing me this news, and it's sort of new to me. Um, and and what's more, Paul, I, I think you're aware of the fact that you've seen this film and said a lot of nice things about it, and I'm yet to catch up with it. Uh, so okay. you might be better placed to, to give would say so, yeah. your thoughts. <laughs> I mean, on face value, I guess that's that's vaguely interesting to me. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned whitewashing, and this has come up with with things like. Um, death notebook recently uh, and i haven't <laughs> said i haven't you necessarily um i haven't necessarily got too much um sort of heavy anticipation for just reworking a, th- a thing that seems to stand just fine on its own from all the reviews that i've heard of your name including your own review so i mean how do you feel about this i i don't know i mean i you know, mixed feelings on ghost in the show i think we you know we liked it much more than other people did um, but on sort of second viewing I will attest it's probably not as good as a, as it was when I saw it in the IMAX um, but I, I don't know Like I still I still struggle to see the point especially when something's come out so recently as your name I mean it, it dropped sort of I think late last year in Japan and so sort of early early to mid this year everywhere else so by the fact that the film's so recent almost to me brands this, this even more pointless than doing something from the ninety five for it in the in the case of Ghost in the Shell or you know Death Note's got a bit of history to it, so I don't know. I, I just almost I would wish that JJ Abrams maybe just put his put some money into you know getting a wider release for your name and you know maybe pushing that into more cinemas. I mean we got to, I got to see it in the IMAX in Cheltenham which was fantastic and I didn't expect to do that and that screening ended up being surprisingly busy so I just think maybe that that would be a better use of his 
for I mean, his time and money, really. He's obviously a fan of the film, otherwise he wouldn't want to, sure. wouldn't want to adapt it. Is it, is it too cynical to suggest that maybe when looking at a property like this has obviously done so well in the Asian market, as well as, you know, reasonably around the world, that maybe it's a case of trying to get just a bigger slice of that overall financial cake? Because at some point, somebody, a potentially Japanese director, was going to rework into a live-action version of that thing anyway. So maybe this is the case of taking on that property so as to, to really capitalise well, I mean, on, on any sort of fan Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, he, he supposedly got the blessing of the original filmmakers, which I can... which which And again, sorry to sound, well, I, sorry I, to sound sure, cynical, I can imagine that, that blessing is just purchased. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, sure, well, I'm yeah. sure they don't stand to make anything from no, a, a huge... No. Hollywood rework so I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how much, you know, having that having that blessing means. And if you look at, you know, if you look at the Dark Tower for, for I think this keeps coming up, Stephen King's blessing. He gave his blessing to the Dark Tower and quite liked the Dark Tower film, or, or, or said he quite liked the Dark Tower film. And then James Cameron saying how much of a how much he liked Terminator Genesis. I think the blessing of the original filmmaker can be purchased uh, mm. for for a fee, unfortunately. So, yeah, I just I think it's for me. I'm not I'm not anti turning animation into live action. Um, one of the best bits about Ghost in the Shell, which is the most recent example I can think of, anyway, one or not as good recent as Death Note, but but Ghost in the Shell, I think is a, is a valid point. Is that actually that I like whatever you say about the film, I think it looked amazing, had some great visuals to it. So I'm not anti the idea of changing animation into live action. I just for me this feels like it's too soon and you know the the film the film isn't even out on home release yet and they're talking about remaking it so well, don't, don't forget how much I like the adaptation of the comic book Kingsman um, which we reviewed just last week so. <laughs> I, I ha- that rant about Kingsman I think is seared into my brain probably yeah, probably as actually. much I don't know I felt almost as comfortable as that as I did in certain scenes of Mother yeah so, I mean yeah. The, the, the Japanese could have taken that property instead and just buried it in the ground um <laughs> Yeah, okay. So there was a second item we wanted to touch on during this segment, Paul. What was that? So, despite my protestations, um, which weren't many actually, we, and, and I'm still not 100% convinced, but I'm going to do it. Really We're sell going, this to the listener, no, Paul. We, no, you're right, you're right. We have agreed that we are going to start, the feature reviews at least for the time being, we are going to start giving them a score at the end of the review. Um, Pete? Do you want to elaborate on the scoring system? <laughs> I'll take responsibility for this. Yeah, yeah I just because it was definitely your idea. Yeah, I just <laughs> see. It, I know a lot of people have a lot of sort of ambivalence about this issue, and maybe are just completely anti the idea of scoring films and it should all be nuanced and be in the review to be honest we only have a certain amount of time to give our thoughts about a particular movie and I just think that it's a, it's something that we can hang those reviews off that will help I think to even um, generate even more conversation around those reviews or our thoughts on the film of course we don't want to boil every review down to just a you know a score out of 10 or 5 or whatever it might be however I think just to give a sort of a punctuation a full stop at the end of the review we'll try it out we'll see how it goes we'll see if people like it if they do we'll carry on if they don't we'll give it up and, and go on to something else but you know we're always changing and evolving the show and hopefully for, for the better so we'll try this this week maybe going forward a few weeks from here and just see how it works out I think that's that's how I'm looking at it anyway yes I know I, I would agree with that and I think for from my perspective if anyone does if anyone listens does follow my my letterbox account the the score that I give a film on letterbox will be the same score multiplied by two because we're doing scores out of ten as the letterbox score. So I will, I will personally make an effort to make sure that my scores are consistent across the board. Yeah, that's um, so you. I might go maverick. Yeah. I might completely <laughs> change that score. So you got to, you got to keep on your toes to keep up. Yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes as we say. And um, yeah, kicking off with today's feature reviews. But before we get anywhere near those, we will be back in just a moment with our popcorn reviews.
So back we are indeed. Um, popcorn movies. Um, we, in fact, the other thing. In fact, the other thing we forgot to mention in the foyer. We're bringing back something else. I say bringing back something else. We've never done scoring, so we can't possibly bring that back. Um, we are going to bring back whether we thought a film was salty or sweet. Because yeah. we quite enjoy that. I, Drum that roll quite please. I kind of feel like you could have just done that rather than talked all around oh, I see. it. Well, I, well, Step sorry. up to the counter, Paul. What are you going to pick in terms of your popcorn selection for this week? What have you got first? Okay, what I've got first is Dennis Hopper's uh, 1988 film, Colours. But Paul, what kind of popcorn is that? Uh, mixed flavour. <laughs> <laughs> we're bringing it back because we're fully it's prepared. A bag. Uh, just about sweet. Right. Just about sweet. Um, to, to set the scene on colours, it is a kind of LA LA sort of cops versus gangs thriller starring Robert Duval and Sean Penn. Um, one Robert Duval is the more experienced cop, and Sean Penn is the kind of like the the kind of jumped up, sort of fired up. I would say more more violent rookie, um, and they're dealing with um, well, gangbangers on the streets of LA. So you, I think you've you've seen this film, type of film many times before, I imagine. Um, but what kind of struck me from it is the fact that it's directed by Dennis Hopper. And I hadn't really heard of it until someone had worked with it to me on Blu-ray, so I thought I'd definitely, definitely check it out. Um, Shouts to Richard Sounds, you guys. Yes, yes, again. <laughs> um, it's it was okay. I, I had some I had some difficulties with it. I was expecting it to be a lot better than it was. Um, it, my biggest gripe with it is it kind of feels very very directionless. So there's, there's the plot isn't really that strong. You've got the two cops kind of driving around. There's a murder happens. There's a, a gangland murder happens at the beginning, as as it always does, and then they're, they're kind of investigating that. They're driving round. I, I think it, I think Dennis Hopper's trying to make a point about certain police brutality, and I think he's trying to make a point about gangs are bad. But I'm not entirely sure what point he's trying to make here. It, it doesn't for me. It didn't sit down on one side of the argument or the other, and I just found myself over the course of two hours losing interest a little bit and thinking where's this going and it's kind of like you, they kind of drive from one from one sort of fairly impressively shot shoot out or set piece to another one um, and characters kind of come and go without any real there's, there's no real character development I would say um, it's entertaining enough as it stands and I think the the difficulty is as I've, this came out uh, before uh, Manchester Society and before Boys in the Hood Hmm. Um, and uh, but obviously I've seen it after those. So having seen those two films, I think what makes those two films engaging is that they actually are told from the gangbangers' perspective and the perspective of the person within the gang itself. So I think those films are a lot more engaging and, and certainly do not hold back about making a point. Whereas I think Colors are just yeah, it didn't quite in this. I think it suffers because I've seen those two films and those two films are out there and you know. For, for better or worse, those films are very, very powerful pieces. So this isn't delivering some sort of Serpico-like polemic about sort not of really, corruption no. in the, I, in I, the police whether force? Or not or... He's, whether or not that's what he was trying, I don't know, but I I couldn't really... I didn't really come out of it thinking... Well, I didn't really come out thinking the film had much of a point to it, and the kind of the loose plotting does, doesn't really help. It's not to say it was bad, because it it's not. You know, Dennis Hopper as a director was was a very talented director as well as actor um, and it's certainly you know from a technical standpoint there, there's a lot to like about it and Robert Duval is for me normally always value for money Sean Penn's a mixed bag but he's pretty good in this so yeah en- enough to like but I wouldn't say I wouldn't rush out and say it's it's, it's an essential watch by any stretch so, so I take back my shout out to Richard Sounds do better yeah, <laughs> yeah no. well thank you for the loan but I won't be watching it again uh, so but just, just about sweet 
So first up for me this week, um, I will step up to the popcorn counter and get out something, although sort of murky um, and and troubling and distressing, certainly sweet in this sort of popcorn analogy that we make. Uh, that is Neil Marshall's The Descent from 2005. It's a film that we may have mentioned on the show at some point in the past, but we've never sort of done a review. The reason I'm bringing it up now is actually we had the chance to go and see a big screen um, screening of the film just this last week in a, a local theatre, which was a great opportunity. Uh, not without its issues not the film here but the screening we had sort of like um, slightly ropey blacks which doesn't help with a film that set down a load of potholes and caves and um, some sound issues uh, the sound levels are a little bit low but to get past that and focus on the film itself for anyone who's not in the know The Descent um, is Neil Marshall's follow-up to not Straw Dogs, as I said when we were walking yes, out. He definitely but, directed Straw Dogs. But no, but, he didn't. But Dogs. So I didn't say he definitely directed Straw he Dogs. Did. He said let's he directed cha- that and the remake. Let's change history. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, six friends. They go caving, and um, one of those is trying to deal with the loss of her family um, in a very early scene. She's involved in a. a road accident which has a sort of spectacular skewering of the members of her family um, and then tries to um, recover with the help of her friends the problem being that one of her friends is a bit of a maverick and takes them down a cave system that isn't the one that they think they were going down um, from this point on things get very stressful and what what always sort of impacted me the hardest Paul about uh, the descent is the claustrophobia and the amount that Neil Marshall manages to achieve with a pretty limited budget um, in terms of just making you feel that sense of being trapped and isolated and a bit hopeless when you're you're down there. When when we came out of the film, I was I was trying to think if if I'd seen a film that has such a successful um, sort of sense of of, of a, sense, a claustrophobic feel to it. Buried. Buried, pretty good one. Buried is a pretty good example, but I think The Descent is certainly one of the best examples of a film with with a claustrophobic feel to it. And I, I think we we were talking on the night as well that actually, um, I think one of one of Neil Marshall's sort of raison d'être for making the film was was that um, he was sick of things being shot in the dark but looking like they were being lit artificially. Mm. Um, so actually, like, the, and this is you say about the black levels, but the the way the film was lit it looked it looks fantastic. It genuinely looks like they're underground. It it genuinely looks like the only source of light is coming from their from their torches. Um, and I think that you know that comes across well. And it was if you the special it was actually one of one of the more interesting special features on the on the disc actually is the is when you see like the fiberglass caverns they built. And Neil Marshall talks about how actually it's very hard to film with yeah. that, with oh, that of light course. levels. So, um, yeah, no, it's a, I think it's a superb part of Of course, and, and I mean, it, it can't be overlooked the fact that at the box office, this thing uh, tanked, really, and, and not least because the, the bus that exploded on 7-7 had the, the advert on the side of it for The Descent. That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah, and it said something like unbelievable terror or, or something along those lines. So, yeah, that obviously didn't that help the film out. And, you know, it, it, it's completely trivial compared to, to what happened that day. But there's so much to recommend this film. I would say... If if anything, on like fourth or fifth viewing, that maybe for me, um, the the lesser or yeah, the lesser interesting thing about the film is in fact the things that show up underground. And I think that I would have been quite happy almost to not have them and mm. just exist on this sort of knife edge of, of isolation and, and claustrophobia. But that's very hard to maintain. And the for other, an hour the and other point to make as well is when when did we say this came out? Two thousand seven. Five. Two thousand five. Um, so why does it still feel? 
that that film is progressive because it has an all-female cast. That's mm. bizarre, isn't it? It still feels like a progressive representation uh, and it almost shouldn't do considering how long ago this film yeah, came Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose the only uh, thing to undercut that is the fact that the, the central... Um, uh, dra- dramatic point that sort of underscores the relationships here is is all in relation to a man. That is true. Yes, um, but, but yeah, it, it, in terms of the Bechdel test, uh, certainly women talking to women about things that aren't men, um, it it passes yes. uh, during its sort of hour and a half runtime. So yeah, the descent will scare the life out of you. But if you're into that sort of thing, check yeah, it out. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's awesome. Paul, what have you got second? Um, I've got a film that came out, I believe, this week or last week, possibly. Um, it's a Netflix, uh, Netflix film, um, and I think everyone's going to expect me to say next that it is another average Netflix film. And do you know what? It's not. Actually, Pete, it was rather good. Um, it's Gerald's Game. Uh, it's Mike Flanagan who directed Oculus. Um, it's his uh, adaptation of Gerald's Game, which is a Stephen King book. Um, and do you know what? It's really rather good. Carlo Guarino um, stars in this um, alongside... I forgot completely forget the actor's name. He plays almost every man in everything, and I've completely forgotten his name. Um, if you wouldn't mind looking at that for me, Pete, while I talk about the Carry review, on. that would be amazing. Um, so basically, the, the premise is um, she got, Carlo Guarino goes away with her husband um, to kind of reignite the marriage and their sex life. Um, the husband the, the, is the titular Gerald, um, and he handcuffs her to a bed uh, for a kinky sex game. He then has a heart attack, uh, and she is stuck handcuffed to the bed. And I won't say any more about it than that. Um, it sounds like it would be kind of... It doesn't sound like it would be very good, and to be honest, I didn't think it would be. It's very, very tense throughout. Uh, Carla Guarino's performance is absolutely fantastic in it, um, and there is, I would say, the contender for 2017's most horrific horror film scene, which will definitely make you appreciate your hands more by the time you come out. I mean, I was—I had been taking them for granted. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I literally at one point I was kind of curled up on the sofa, going, "Oh, that is grim." Like, so uh, yeah, that scene is particularly potent. Um, there's a bit of Stephen King-esque silliness, I think, towards the end, but it doesn't mar. Um, what is otherwise an excellent film? Did we find his name? Bruce Greenwood. It is Bruce Greenwood. I I thought it was Bruce Greenwood, the the guy who plays everyone and everything. He's also very very good in this and delivers a very creepy, very creepy performance. In fairness, but, yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, like my, I would say I would I would say that this is my pleasant surprise of the year so far. I'll be very I'll be very to use the word surprise again. I'll be very surprised if another film catches me off guard and is actually much better than I expect it to be. So actually definitely see Gerald's game I would say yeah I'm, I'm going to catch up with it Paul um, funnily enough I uh, was, it was a sweet film by the way I was thank <laughs> you very much sir uh, I was about to watch this and then my internet just stopped working for the first time in a very long time so I haven't I'd feel for you because that you know yet. wow your but, internet um, goes down yeah <laughs> uh Anyway, to bring us into port, I have a second popcorn film. And this one, again, is um, a thing that is available via a streaming service, this time at Amazon's video service. It's Una um, from, I believe, first-time feature director Benedict Andrews. And this one is another film in a, in a little collection that have helped to get all this buzz building around Rooney Mara as that, that sort of bright young thing and sort of Hollywood's current... Um, Belle de Jour or whatever uh, it is a sort of stripped down um, fairly emotional 
story about a girl um, played by Rooney Mara and also played by a younger actress in mostly flashback who was in a relationship with an older man played by Ben Mendelsohn when she was just 13 years old and he was considerably older perhaps 40 or, or thereabouts um, the actress uh, excuse me the girl then as the, the the adult version of that character decides that she wants to find Ben Mendelssohn's character and ask him why he left her because she's been left with this idea that maybe she did something wrong she wasn't in some way good enough and you can tell that you know the way that she views the situation is very much warped and um, unclear and she's troubled and she's having trouble moving on anywhere very far with her life she still in fact lives in the house where this uh, essentially abuse took place when, when she was a teenager so she goes to his workplace he works in some sort of giant um, warehouse depot uh, one of his colleagues is played by Riz Ahmed who's very good in this um, apart from those three actors very few other people have any prominent role to play and the film is all about these um, usually head-to-head two-person pieces of dialogue about the events well, of the two past actors and... that I rate quite highly so I'd be intrigued to see what you thought so, so yeah I I, I like it, Paul. I like her performance. I think there's that fragility to Rooney Mara that we're you know now quite familiar with from things like Side Effects and more recently A Ghost Story. Um, and that really works. I think Ben Mendelsohn has been rarely been better than he is in this and it really plays to his strengths. I do think that there are still uh, perhaps some problems with this film and I think that <laughs> maybe the way that it, it plays out will not be entirely... Um, satisfying uh, uh, sometimes it just feels that it's adapted from a stage play I haven't mentioned this yet and it's one of those films that sometimes ends up feeling a bit too stagey although we're not on a stage they're instead, like fences have you caught up with fences I yet? haven't but okay. yeah I've got that yeah. impression too yeah. like we might not be on a stage but we're in basically a staged a stage, environment yeah. and yeah. nobody else is there and there are just two leads so if you like those two actors, uh, Mendelssohn and uh, Rini Mara and of course as I said Riz Ahmed then this is for sure worth checking out I think it's not without its problems, but it's another um, another one to add to the list of reasons why Rooney Mara, I think, is a bit of a treasure at the moment. So, yeah, I would, I would catch up with it if you do have the chance. That's called Una. And, um, yeah, what am I calling that? Probably uh, hard to call it sweet. Yeah, a, a mixed bag for sure. A mixed bag. Cool. Well, thank you, Pete. Uh, we'll be back after this with our feature reviews. In fact, no, we won't be back after this with feature reviews because... I've got a confession to make. Jack was set homework this week uh, by a listener. It was Hedbrig and the Angry Inch. And we have re- we've made an oversight and never given Jack access to the Facebook page. So Jack didn't see the homework because so he didn't get it. So it's not that he hasn't done it. We just didn't manage to issue with him. So <laughs> well, he also Jack- hasn't done it. So. Well, yeah, well. so Jack, apologies. You have no homework this week. Your homework for the next episode is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, okay. set by Rob one of our listeners uh, and Rob apologies but Jack will do it that is our fault and he will have certainly have access to the film and the Facebook page very shortly uh, but in the meantime we'll be back after this with our feature reviews so back indeed we are um, Pete what have we got first so let's have a look at The Bad Batch. This is Anna Liliamipour's follow-up to A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. We both quite like that. We talked about it on this very show. 
The film has not been without controversy surrounding some of the depictions on screen, but we'll get to that in due course. Basically, we follow a character played by the actress Suki Waterhouse, who is released from some kind of detention centre early in the film and um, walks out into a sort of wasteland fever nightmare version of a sort of American society, perhaps in the future. Um, And he's very soon in quite a bit of bother. Here's a clip. You know what this is? It's a tomato. First, it was a seed. You take care of a garden, it takes care of that. You feed it, it feeds you. Few things in this world operate like that, fair and square. So yeah, that is a clip that gives you, um, well, it's quite hard to get a taste of what The Bad Batch is actually all about, but that gives you, I think, a taste of some of the uh, some of the levelers, levels of, of the, the bizarre nature of The Bad Batch here. Um, as, as we said earlier, it's, um, it's, it's yeah, it's, a, it's a quite a, a nuts film in fairness, isn't it? I think would would be fair to say. Yeah, so um, I mean... It's to, certainly got an individual character to it. To pick up from where I left off, I mean... Um, this character played by, by Suki Waterhouse walks into this community that call themselves the Bad Batch, right? And um, at the head of that community is a sort of muscular, very sort of intimidating character played by Jason Momoa. And um, early in the film, she finds herself losing both an arm and a leg in a sort of um, what seems to be a sort of precursor to her being eaten. Yes. Um, she manages to escape that fate and sort of wanders through the desert looking for escape or possibly redemption. I think that's about as far as we can go with, with plot of yeah. the film. Um, think Bad things happen in between. But yeah, you're right, Paul. It is a very weird film. It's a film that feels like it was made under the influence of very strong opiates. And I think that's actually probably the case uh, Anna Amipour has said that she went to Burning Man and, and did a load of like LSD or something oh, okay. and, and, <laughs> yeah had these visions of, of sort of I believe and I, I'm you know paraphrasing but the way that society around her was it's worth noting and, and it's possible that I'm reading too much into this but it's worth noting that the director herself is an Iranian American is obviously coming in to a society that isn't the society which her family lived in and the previous generation lived in and has found herself sort of planted into this well the modern world that is sort of confusing at at best um not unlike the central character here you can read a lot of the bad batch as quite heavily metaphorical I would say. And I think if you fail to do that, you're going to have even harder of a time understanding sort of where any of this is going or why, why it's going there, really. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, the the film, from, from a technical standpoint, audio, audio and visual, it is an audio and visual delight. It does look amazing. And, you know, this this following on from um, A Girl Who Walks Home Alone at Night uh, reinforces Amapur as one of the most visually exciting directors working today, without a shadow of a doubt. I think the visuals are fantastic. The world, the world that she's created is great. Um, the kind of the whole film has got a very woozy, trippy feel to it, and that that's, that certainly comes across. Um, There's large than life characters. I think Jason Momoa is on on great form. Keanu Reeves turns up as you heard in the clip um, as an equally kind of batshit crazy character. Um, and the premise, the premise is good, and the world is certainly one that draws you in. Um, 
but for me it just it's, it's a shame that the film just started to lose its way really about halfway through uh, you know there wasn't much of a narrative structure in the first place um, and what's there you know disappears um, I think if the film had been 90 minutes long I think we might have been onto something quite special here um, and it, two hours kind of, yeah and it, as it rose it stands at two hours if it's, and if it's half an hour short I think it would have been fine you could have gone okay that was just like a woozy trip through this crazy world and I've really enjoyed every second of it and just kind of embraced the visual and the visual aspects of it as it is I think I think my interest started to wane a little bit towards the end um, and for me in comparatively to a previous film which I thought was fantastic um, Bad Batch came across as a little bit of a disappointment for me. yeah I mean in the case of both films because I see a lot of people making this division of, of sort of the foot you know a girl walks home alone, alone at night or something they really liked and they just didn't get along with this at all I find that divide a little bit hard because I think that both of them skirt very much on the border of falling into being sort of utterly pretentious. But for me, just uh, like landing on the right Mm. side of that. However, I can't completely disagree. I mean, I think this thing... it, it's got all the sense that it needs for a thing that's made by someone who I think is sort of exploring herself as a director and is also exploring, um, yeah, narcotics, as I've mentioned before. And I mean, it's probably going to be the kind of film that people have very profound reckonings with when they themselves are also sort of heavily sedated. But that can't be how we recommend no. a piece of filmmaking, obviously. I think you mentioned the stuff with Keanu Reeves. I think that's perhaps the strongest material in the film yeah. in terms of having some richness of sort sort of um, subtext I do think that she throws a lot at the wall and not all of it sticks I, I do think that, yeah. at some point she's just overstretching she's sort of just flailing around in territory and, and hoping that something really resonates and maybe it doesn't we should also mention um, Jim Carrey's in this oh, as, I forgot Jim Carrey's in this everyone yeah, yeah, will forget yeah. Jim yeah. Carrey's in this but like yeah. he's done no press for it he doesn't really want to be connected with it but if I was Jim Carrey's you know press agent I'd say you know get the word out that this is really a startling turn from Jim Carrey albeit a very short um, yes. cameo <laughs> yeah. that, almost cameo that he has in this film he was actually lined up to play a completely different role which uh, the directors admitted was a bit of a sort of bait and switch she didn't really want him in that role but okay. managed to persuade him to take this role right, as a I sort see. of um, drifting vagrant heavily bearded man and in fact Anna Lily Amipour said that when she rolled up to his house to take this meeting with him about being in the film when he opened the door he'd actually already got this sort of unkempt full beard okay. and she sort of saw it as this kind of, of his recent media coverage but. <laughs> yeah it, it was like this this profound moment for her where she said you know this was kind of meant to be but the, the last thing I want to touch on before we get to our scores Paul is there's been this controversy that can't be sort of overlooked with this film and it mainly focuses around an interview that was um, I think in Chicago or Seattle I forget perhaps Chicago where the director was confronted by a member of the audience after a screening who said why is all the violence in this film directed at black characters and why is it so pro- prolonged and gratuitous um, this is a difficult area to get into and we're not going to delve into it any great length but what was your reaction when you heard any of that sort of response taking aside what you think of just the, the film on its own merits I guess it is it's it is an interesting point um, and again it's I don't uh, the honest answer is, is I don't know is I think when we talked about um, Wind River we were talking about you know representate again representation on screen well and a ghost story as well yeah and a ghost story yeah yeah um you know it's something that comes up a lot and I don't know the honest answer is I don't know with this it didn't for me watching it it's not something I mean I noticed it but it's not something that I thought upset me particularly Hmm. um 
and I, this is the thing I, I think some people do often look too deep and go well that is that deliberate here I think maybe it's an unfortunate coincidence I would be do you, if you see where I'm coming from like I, yeah, I mean, I suppose Should that... Should screenwriters be more responsible? Possibly. But, but, but. but what do we mean by responsible, though? Because it's difficult to pass out, you know, if what... Whether you like or dislike this film, if what she's attempting to do is point a sort of um, warped mirror at American society, mm. then depicting violence disproportionately against people of colour seems to me to be almost entirely appropriate. And that's where this gets into, a, I think, a, a muddy area, because yeah. it can't be the fact that everything is equally partitioned out in terms of who... We should also say, by the way, that the film starts, as we've mentioned, with a, um, a Caucasian uh, central character being uh, dismembered, yeah. uh, losing both an arm and a leg in, in fairly sort of graphic detail. I think the problem with the film, maybe in this area, comes from the way that the the child is is dealt with, and you know we're not going to spoil anything here. But the the woman who is um um the uh, black lady who is killed, her daughter is sort of taken on as a surrogate yeah. daughter by the Suki Waterhouse character, which I think feels like it happens too easily um, and without proper justification. That's where I really think that there might be an, an argument that this is a little bit. Irresponsible. I mean, Anna Liliamapur's answer seems to be, I put images on screen, I, you know, don't have to tell you what they're about, mm. basically. And she sort of washed her hands of that a, a bit, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm somewhere in between, Paul, and I think that maybe people who jumped down her throat to, you know, t- Twitter was awash a, a with people calling her like a despicable racist. Yeah, Twitter's always a wash. And, and that she people. should be boycotted and that, you know, this is a hateful movie. I don't think that's the case. I don't think either that it's a brilliant movie and I don't think it's a terrible movie. And I think, I think a- maybe then the problem is if if the film was more focused... And this is if the film was more focused, and it, if it was meant to be a mirror to American society, then as you say, that would be an effective tool to use. But for me, the film isn't focused enough, so it's not quite clear whether that's what the film is about or not. So I think that may be why, it maybe, is probably more a more well, of the reason why I, people are questioning. I guess I come down bit. on the other side. I think it's certainly about holding well, yeah. up to America. Okay. I'm yeah. just not sure that it, at all times it does that with with equal quality I suppose yeah, uneven fair, yeah. Is, yeah. is a word you might ban around here Paul the listeners are excited to know though what do you score this film what are you going to give it coming out a six well sir um, I'm also going to score it a, a, a heavier like more confident but also a, a six I nearly went for seven because of the visual style and I do love the visual style but because it's directionless it is still going to be a six so uh, yeah after this we'll be back with a feature review of Flatliners So flatliners, Paul. Uh, we were all <laughs> we were all waiting <laughs> for 1990 Kiefer Sutherland vehicle flatliners to finally get a remake, rework, reboot sequel, and we've got one sequel <laughs> now. Sure, because he's in the background with a stick. Anyway, um, yeah, this one with the tagline "You haven't lived." Until you've died, uh, is all about a group of med students who take it on themselves to experiment with the afterlife via delivering um, like uh, defibrillator shocks and stopping their own hearts. The idea being, anyone who's seen the, the first 
iteration of this film will we'll know all about this but the idea being that you can sort of inhabit this middle ground between life and death and, and, and find something profound uh, on the other side so to speak um, we'll get into how this works or doesn't work right after we've played you a little clip whatever's happening to us these hallucinations these hauntings whatever it is it's only going to get worse and until we figure it out until we figure out what to do Whatever killed him is going to kill all of us too. So yeah, that kind of gives you an idea of the uh, the setup. Um, we've got uh, starring in this. Who's directed this, Pete? It's the guy that made Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, unless I'm otherwise mistaken, isn't it? Niels Arden Orplev. Okay, the well well put, well said. Um, yeah, so we've got uh, starring in this. Um, I would say the probably the two most notable names are Ellen Page and Diego Luna, um, who are two actors that I actually quite rate. Um, and to cut to the chase, are much better than this project, Pete. I mean, I. Well, yeah. I mean, let's let's talk <laughs> about that a little bit. I mean, an early thought here, Paul, and I'll have fun with this film. I'm sure because I didn't have film fun any fun watching it. But uh, this film, to me, it could be called not flatliners but flat stomachs. First of all, because wow, <laughs> Ellen Page has been doing some sit ups for her her part in in this particular piece of work. Because of course we've got people stripping to crop tops all the time so that they can like be put under or whatever, right? Um, I don't know why it exists. I really don't know why it exists. I don't know what anyone's going to benefit from it. And it really, to me, struck me as, as having the feel of like a, a television movie. Mm. It, 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 even the, the opening sequence is sort of brazenly televisual. It has this bizarre car crash sequence where it seems like the reason the car crashed is it hit some kind of pneumatic trampoline <laughs> yeah, just uh, it and in dived yeah. into a river. Yeah. Uh, obviously, <laughs> the events aren't, aren't funny in of themselves. Ellen Page loses her, her younger, much younger sister. And then we jump forward nine years. She looks exactly the same yeah, exactly because the same, I guess yeah. the ageing doesn't happen in the world of flatliners. Um, and then very soon, it's almost like it doesn't feel that far from like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place where they're all like in these these white coats and then they start saying dialogue and you think hold on you're not actually supposed to be medical professional oh you are yeah. you are like albeit students they're getting all this work really important work to do and they're like seemingly controlling a sort of wing of the hospital it, it's, it's weird it's really weird stuff right I'll tell you what's weirder is it is supposed to be and the, some of the publicity has said this is supposed to be a sequel right now, Kiefer Sutherland turns up, which is quite a nice touch for, for fans of the original. He oh, looks Kiefer dreadful, though. He's got <laughs> yes, embarrassing strange appearance in this but one. But he has, and I forget the name on I forget the name on his medical coat. He plays a character. This is supposed to be a sequel, right? Kiefer Sutherland turns up. You're like, okay, I can see this would be a sequel. So Kiefer Sutherland will probably get involved and go, "What are you doing? I've done this before. Don't be so silly." And that would at least make it. You know, at that point, they can genuinely claim it's a sequel. But the name, the character name on Kiefer Sutherland's jacket is not the same character name as he played in the first film. So what? What are they doing? But at one point, <laughs> but he, at one point, Paul, he does say to these gathered students who are gallivanting around using the basement to put each other to death, uh, he does say to them, um, but uh, you're not doing anything you're not telling me about, are you? And he'll say, no, no, sir, we're not. And that's it. That's, that's, that's it. Yeah. So I don't, so I think, you know, I think they've tried to put him in to try and make it a sequel. It's yeah. not, it's just a remake. Also it's, a bit problematic, I think, for people who are, are 
TV and film literate, which a lot of our listeners I know very much are, is recently we had um, Jason Isaacs in the OA uh, and his characters drowning themselves so as they yeah. can step over to the other side over and over and over again, done, by the way, much more effectively visually than is done here, uh, and much more interesting to, to that extent. We've seen, I could probably pull other examples as well of like similar, I mean, even the Discovery that we talked about that not long ago, dealing with this area and here we've just sort of dredged this thing up as if it has, I mean, this is too easy, but as if it has itself been sort of defibrillated and brought back for the dead. And it, and it just didn't need to be. It's just, it? it's just boring. That's the problem. I think, you know, Diego, this is a day, Diego Luna, Ellen Page, what are you doing? I think I like both of them. Diego Luna's dreadful in this. Yeah, just, he, can, just he can't, his line in. readings are like, yeah. are so awkward as to be almost comical and and it's just constant exposition throughout yeah. the film about this is what's happening maybe the, they're hunting the nose dialogue is because, just horrible because we get yeah. with this film to understand that the reason that they have to go under and they have to see this four minutes of time in the sort of middle ground is because all of them have a guilty conscience about something they've done before I saw this film I saw the trailer for the again completely unnecessary next iteration of the Saw franchise uh, yes, called Jigsaw, Jigsaw. Yeah. what's that whole thing predicated on. It's people who did something in the in the past that they feel bad about. But here we're digging it out, attaching it to a sort of early nineties movie that everybody's forgotten about. That wasn't and, that, that's and I enough. watched that actually earlier in the week. And it's like the Flatliners, the original, is no great shakes as a film anyway. You know, it, it's it's well enough known, I think, because of its star power. It had Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts, Oliver Platt, uh, Kevin Bacon in it. But it's still not a great film. And it should have just been right. it should have been left alone, surely. Yes, and like, completely. can we just talk about as well the fact that uh, towards the end of this movie, um, in order to tie up a loose end and sort of resolve a problem, what do the kids do? They go onto a bridge and throw a MacBook into the river. Yeah, is that all right now? Yeah, and the whole, right? the whole just... thing just just peters out into into nothing. Peters out, no pun intended. Yeah, um, but yeah, that, the film was about as bad as that pun. Um, yeah, there's a lot not to bizarre. like about this. It reminded honest. me a bit, Paul, of um, when we reviewed not too long ago. Uh, what was the the the, the ring, of course, rings, rings. with, oh, with the guy out of Big Bang Theory. Yeah. It had that sort of feel about it, as if it's like a kind of straight to vid- video slash sort of TV movie that I guess on the on the star power of like Ellen Page and perhaps to a lesser extent Diego Luna has has made it here. And the director, as you quite rightly pointed out, directed Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, the and maybe, much much better Girl with a Dragon. Tattoo. Maybe has a bit of clout now, but really odd. Just one of those films that tells you, you think, why is this here? Yeah, is this just in a hole because there's nothing else to release? I, I really don't know. I mean, even like the score seemed badly edited. Everything just seemed mashed together in, yeah. at odds with the images on the screen. It, a, a bizarre, bizarre experience. And yeah, as we say, sort of one that could could be described as flatlining itself, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. So, absolutely. so pull us out of this torpor, Paul. What are you going to give Flatliners 2017 uh, uh, as, as far as the score goes? A rollicking three out of ten. I will give Flatliners 2017. It was rubbish. I, I'm going to go one better or worse and give this one a, a, a trembling uh, two. Oh. Two, two out of ten. I would, I would avoid this. Um, and uh, I don't know, do something more enjoyable, like sort of defibrillating yourself. I don't... <laughs> Fair enough. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the show. We'll be back next week with reviews of Blade Runner. I will warn listeners in advance: um, we are recording the episode next week 
on the back of my stag do, uh, which is going to be two nights out in uh, Bristol. Um, so we will endeavour to have as much energy as possible and we'll make sure that uh, Jack is there to defibrillate us back to life. There we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Jack will have his homework then back, so you will hear his dulcet tones again. Um, but for now, just find, you know, find us on at, on Instagram, Strangers in the Cinema, Facebook, Strangers in the Cinema, Twitter, at Stranger Cinema. Um, and that's about it from me. So uh, goodbye until next week. Shut up and sit down.